Mr. Jashankar, thank you so much for joining us. Um, this time we decided that we are going to let our guests speak to you through the session. Uh, lots of folks had uh, questions when the last round, when the last panel got over, they were not addressed. Maybe you can answer those as well. Um, you, could, uh, you could also, some of those interesting issues that were raised could also be addressed. But before we move to the audience and their engagement with you in this particular format, um, in these two years where we've seen so much happen from the pandemic to political action, to disruptions, to wars, to invasions, to threats, what keeps, what are the three things, three things that would keep you up at night? What keeps you awake? What keeps you engaged? Well, to be honest, the only thing which keeps me awake at night is jet lag occasionally, <laughs> uh, but uh, not too often actually. Uh, but uh, if I were to think of three things, uh, I think one, the shocks that the international order has been experiencing. Uh, because uh, if you were to look at the last three decades, uh, globalization, spread of technology, uh, these were, uh, these were even, even the rebalancing, the prosperity, the high growth rates in Asia particularly, these were the dominant trends. And uh, in particularly the last two years, since we've had the last physical meeting of uh, the Raisina Dialogue, uh, we've really had some big shocks. You know, COVID was a shock. Uh, Afghanistan was a shock. Uh, Ukraine is a shock. Uh, in a sense, the, the sharper friction between big powers, between the West and Russia, between the United States and China, these two have, have added to it. So, so I think, uh, I won't say it keeps me awake at night, but certainly it's something which anybody doing foreign policy needs to spend a lot of time trying to get the world right. Mm -hmm. The second point I would make is if you are trying to get the world right, you obviously need a operational, um, operational metrics uh, to respond to uh, the world which is changing. So how do you keep, you know, how do you develop that? How do you update that? Uh, how do you course correct? Uh, and in our case, uh, you know, uh, we have, uh, especially since uh, 2014, 2015, roughly the same time as uh, Raisina actually has come into being, uh, we've had a much greater clarity about how uh, we engage the world. Uh, we've done it in a sense in concentric circles. There's a neighborhood first. Uh, there are these extended neighborhoods in Southeast Asia and the Gulf in Central Asia. Uh, there's a very conscious policy of engaging uh, all the major powers simultaneously uh, uh, in a world, uh, in, in you know, a policy which uh, Shashi claims credit for called multi-alignment. Uh, we still haven't quite agreed what the word should be. Uh, and uh, uh, we, uh, I, I would say uh, also, you know, how do you, how do you develop a larger global footprint? But the, to do all of that, the, the third issue uh, is how do you develop the capabilities? Uh, and uh, I, I think uh, uh, Jay Panda before referred to uh, Atmanirbhar Bharat, a more self-reliant India. Self-reliant not just in capabilities, but self-reliant in mindset. And self-reliant in terms of 
shouldering greater responsibilities. Uh, but again, you need a narrative that would accompany that, uh, a narrative in a sense of a new India. Uh, so, I, so therefore, to me, getting the world right, issue number one, developing the operational strategy to deal with that world, issue number two, uh, and then developing the capabilities and the narratives to deal with that, that would be my three big ones. So, uh, uh, Dr. Jayashankar has uh, agreed we will turn to the audience straight away. Mm -hmm. sure. And I think sure. we have esteemed guests uh, uh, with us today. And mm -hmm. I'm going to first invite the Minister of Foreign Affairs, Norway, uh, Minister Hoodfield, to pose the first uh, uh, question to you. My colleagues will get you the mic. So, thank you. A main draw of uh, the Racina dialogue is that it is hosted by the world's largest uh, democracy. Russia's aggression towards Ukraine is an example of an authoritarian state attacking a democracy. Indeed, many would say that Russia attacked Ukraine precisely because it's a democracy. How does India, as the world's largest democracy, see its role in defending free societies globally? Well, uh you know, uh, I, I think in a sense, some of that was debated in the earlier panel. Uh, I think where uh, the conflict in Ukraine is concerned, we have a, a fairly clear position that has been articulated, uh, a position which emphasizes the urgent cessation of fighting, uh, which urges a return to diplomacy and dialogue, uh, which uh, stresses the uh, need to respect sovereignty and territorial integrity of states. But since you raised it as a larger issue, uh, I, I do think uh, this is an issue of concern, not just for India, uh, uh, because the fact is that, uh, you know, uh, there are different countries with, who have, who in a sense evolve a combination of uh, values, uh, interests, history, experience, culture, to approach uh, conflicts and specific situations. Uh, so, uh, I mean, you spoke about Ukraine. I could also, uh, I remember less than a year ago what happened in Afghanistan, uh, where uh, an entire civil society was thrown under the bus by the world. Uh, or, or we in Asia uh, face our own sets of uh, challenges uh, which often uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, I would say uh, impact on the rules-based order. So, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I would say quite honestly, uh, all of us would like to, to find the right balance of our uh, beliefs, of our interests, of our experience, and that's really what we're all trying to do. And uh, uh, it, it looks different from different parts of the world. The priorities are different. That's quite natural. Uh, but uh, uh, as I said, at the moment, uh, these shocks are really for all of us to uh, be concerned about because uh, each of these events, uh, Afghanistan, uh, COVID, Ukraine, uh, big power rivalry, have global consequences and consequences for the everyday person. So um, uh, let me uh, turn to the Minister of uh, Foreign Affairs uh, mm -hmm. from uh, Luxembourg, uh, Minister Asselborn, 
and, and invite him into this uh, conversation here. So my question is, uh, dear colleague, uh, we know that uh, a few weeks ago, Sergei Lavrov, who was appointed in 2004, same year as myself, he was here in, in Delhi. Uh, can you tell us a little bit the justification of what Russia is doing uh, in uh, Ukraine? Uh, we heard in Europe always a denazification uh, and then also to prevent the genocide of Russians in uh, in, in uh, Ukraine. So really, the justification of, of such a military intervention uh, after the 24th of January of uh, February this year, how does he explain it to you? He is a diplomat. He was uh, represented Russia even the Soviet Union before uh, in, in New York. He is minister since uh, 17, 18 years. And I think everything that Russia is doing in Ukraine is against, really against international law and also the charter of the UN. Thank you. Well, look, uh, if you want to know the justification of Russia, that's for Sergei Lavrov to do. I'm prepared to justify what uh, India's views are on Ukraine or any other matter. I recognize today that the conflict in Ukraine is the dominant issue, if not among the dominant issues of the day. And it's a dominant issue not just in terms of principles and values alone, also in terms of the practical consequences of it, the knock-on effects. Uh, the truth is, uh, there is really nobody who wants to see this conflict. I mean, this, there will be no winners out of this conflict. Uh, so, but I, I also stress, and I say this to you because both of you are my European colleagues, uh, and I understand that at this moment, uh, this would probably occupy you to the exclusion of almost everything else. But there is also a world out there, and I'm very glad that you're sitting here in India, uh, because it would remind you that uh, there are equally pressing issues in other parts of the world. I mentioned Afghanistan. I mentioned the challenges uh, which we faced in Asia. Uh, and if I were to put those very challenges in terms of principles, I mean, when, when rules-based order was uh, under challenge in Asia, the advice we got from Europe is do more trade. At least we're not giving you that advice. Uh, and. Uh, uh, the, and in terms of, uh, you know, Afghanistan, I mean, please show me which part of the rules-based order uh, justified, uh, you know, what, what the world did there. So, so let's, let's uh, I think, uh, see this in the right context. Uh, as, you know, our position is that we all have to find some way of returning to diplomacy and dialogue. And to do that, the fighting must stop. I think that is really the focus of what we are trying to do. Let me uh, move away from Europe to another. Uh, Minister Lockson, can we have the mic here? Can we have the mic, Aditya, to Minister Lockson, please? Yes. Thank you, Aditya. I think this issue of genocide should be put in this context. When asked of India, you're talking about the country that sent an army to prevent the extinction of the people who would later become Bangladesh. I remember that because I was young. Andre Malrov, 
uh, well, in his grandiloquent way, said he would form a legion to fight there as they had fought in the Spanish Civil War. So this is India, the country that answers the call when uh, people are facing genocide. Thank you. Um, can, I, can I return to the minister from Madagascar, uh, Richard Randria Mandarato? I hope I got the name right. Nearly. Yes, thank you. I'm from Madagascar, uh, West Indian Ocean Island, uh, next to Mauritius, Seychelles, Comoros. And uh, my question is uh, uh, regarding the Indo-Pacific vision and ambition that uh, we both share. To start with, let me point it out that India and Madagascar made the same choice as regard to Ukraine. We voted abstention, if I may say so, so we have something in common. But my question as regard to um, this vision of uh, Indo-Pacific, how do you see the leadership of your country, if we may take it as a leadership, natural leadership, because your country is so big compared, for example, to Madagascar, how do you see it and where do we start? How do we materialize uh, such a vision from the West uh, Indian Ocean uh, perspective? Because uh, we are spoke about, you know, the Chinese and uh, that part of the, the uh, uh, Indo-Pacific, but from the west side of India, Ocean, how do you see that, uh, uh, Mr. Minister? Thank you. Okay, can uh, I just add something to that, sir? Please. Uh, is there now a more broader consensus that um, the Harry Harris definition of the Indo-Pacific from uh, Bollywood to Hollywood is no longer valid and perhaps it has to go to the Western Indian Ocean as well? Is that a more broader acceptance of that idea? Uh, well, yes, except that Western Indian Ocean is not alliterative with Bollywood and Hollywood. So <laughs> I, I think you need a, you need a catch uh, phrase out there. But no, I, 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 I think the minister's question is a very valid one uh, because there are really uh, two or three sets of uh, uh, forces at play here. I think one, uh, as Indian Ocean countries, uh, we need to, in a sense, recognize and reclaim our history. Uh, that we were a very uh, vibrant, pluralistic uh, uh, e- ecosystem for, uh, for the passage of commerce and culture for many, many years. Now, this was disrupted during the colonial times. Uh, and I think as part of uh, today, the, the changing world, a much more globalized world, uh, a much more rebalanced world, how do you rebuild our economies? How do we actually do more Uh, interactions with each other rather than go through uh, intermediaries uh, of a a very different era. And in that sense, uh, recreating uh, the Indian Ocean, I would say, I'm using community with a small c here. Uh, uh, And and, uh, also, how do we we look for solutions amongst each other? In 2015, uh, Prime Minister Modi actually put forward a vision called Sagar, which is literally a word, uh, it's an acronym, but it means ocean, uh, which was security and growth for all in the region. Uh, and that's been, uh, in a sense, the template by which uh, we have really stepped up uh, our cooperation 
uh, with a lot of countries, including uh, Madagascar. Uh, and now where the Indian, uh, where the Indo-Pacific is concerned, I think there, there's a slightly different issue there, which is that the, uh, the, the Indian Ocean and the Pacific Ocean have become much more seamless because uh, countries on either side of that uh, imaginary divide uh, are actually have political security and economic interests uh, and uh, therefore uh, it's actually untenable to uh, see them in, in, in compartmentalized terms. Uh, so that's I would say a large, larger geopolitical uh, happening which is taking place and to me the two are completely uh, sort of reconcilable. A stronger Indian Ocean uh, uh, activities actually contribute to the Indo-Pacific as well. So uh, let me stay with the Indian Ocean and let me uh, turn to Minister Aminat Shona. Minister, I am representing the Maldives and I'm the Environment Minister as well and climate change is an existential threat for us. I do believe the commitment made by India in COP26 is by far one of the most ambitious mitigation targets we heard. And I also understand how complicated uh, energy transition is for India, particularly because we still have millions without access to power. And development is a necessity for India and for South Asia as well. But climate change, as I said, is an existential threat. I don't think it's just for small island nations like the Maldives, but even mm -hmm. for India. Sure. Um, we have the highest mountains in South Asia. We also have small island states like us, which is one of the lowest countries in the world. We don't have a higher ground. So my question is, um, as we enter into a world which is complicated by energy conflict, and issues like this. We also have climate change um, before us that we can't wait um, to address these things until countries are comfortable um, to deal with it. So how, how do you see climate politics will evolve given the, nature, given the urgency of uh, this issue that we have? Thank you. Uh, well, you know, uh, from the Indian perspective, uh, I mean, first of all, uh, I, I agree with everything you said. And uh, uh, from the Indian perspective, uh, there are two parts to this issue. One is climate action, uh, and, and I uh, look at it in terms of what we ourselves do, uh, and the other is climate justice. Uh, and we need both, which is everybody needs to do the utmost that they can, but also ensure that uh, there's uh, the, the more vulnerable, uh, the more exposed, uh, less resourced uh, countries and societies uh, are actually supported uh, in in this uh, challenge. Now we all know the you know the, the story of climate change, uh, you know how they've been uh, uh, repeatedly. Uh, you know, uh, the, the promises of resources which have been given in COP after COP have, have not been kept. Uh, but, uh, you know, at the same time, because others are not keeping the word doesn't mean you don't do what you would, you can do and will do. And that's, that's the approach which, which we have taken. Uh, from our point of view, uh, you know, if you look between, I, I would say, uh, it's, it's now six years since uh, Paris happened. Uh, 
we are probably among the few G20 economies which have actually kept to our Paris commitments. Uh, and we are, we are careful about making commitments. We, are, you know, we don't overpromise. Uh, we try, but we are sincere about what we promise. Uh, so I'm pretty confident that what we have committed to do in COP26, we will do. Uh, in terms of the, the challenges which small uh, island developing states are facing, I, I, for us, that comes right on top because they are actually the most vulnerable. Uh, and uh, uh, whether it is, uh, you know, our, many of our uh, initiatives, the International Solar Alliance Initiative, the Coalition for Disaster uh, Resilient uh, uh, Infrastructure Initiative, uh, some of the newer initiatives that uh, we tabled at COP26 are actually aimed at highlighting uh, the uh, the predicament of uh, small islands. In terms of uh, upping its role in trilateral uh, relationships, and you spoke about helping within sub-communities or community with small c, and how can India actually help uh, the Indo-Pacific region and more specifically the SIDS and more specifically Mauritius? Thank you. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, uh, look, uh, let, let me uh, actually give you a set of answers. Uh, one, let's look at the immediate crisis we are facing, the knock-on effects of the Ukraine conflict. Uh, you know, as I said, uh, one impact of that we see in energy prices, uh, but one we see in terms of food shortages uh, and food inflation. Uh, and India can make a difference today by uh, stepping in in terms of uh, uh, export of uh, agricultural commodities, especially wheat, uh, and that is the case. Uh, we are trying to see how we can supply more wheat to meet global shortfalls. Uh, it, there are, of course, some constraints here, which is uh, that uh, uh, what we have in terms of public stocks, there are uh, WTO uh, limits on, on trading with those stocks. Uh, but this is a very unusual situation, so uh, we, we hope that the WTO would look at it uh, in that manner. But uh, if we can contribute today to alleviate uh, food shortages, whether it's, uh, you know, uh, it's government purchases, uh, expanding the markets, helping the World Food Program. Uh, I think this is a very big contribution that we can make and we are prepared to make that. Uh, in terms of something longer term, uh, you know, we've always had a history of South-South cooperation, even when our resources were less, our income levels were lower. Uh, we've always tried to do, you know, we tried to share what we could. Uh, it's been visible in terms of projects, in terms of training, in terms of education, uh, and uh, in terms of sharing uh, experiences and best practices. Now, that has steadily expanded uh, as we have become bigger. Uh, and, uh, I mean, in the case of Mauritius, uh, uh, you know, there are some very good examples of that development partnership, uh, the Metro in Mauritius, the Supreme Court in Mauritius, uh, social housing projects. Uh, these are all good examples. And, you know, I can, I can pretty much cite that across uh, a very large part of the developing world. I think today, uh, if I were to look in terms of uh, our development projects, I think probably there are about, my rough memory is about 65, 70 countries uh, in the world where we have uh, done development projects, uh, which would actually be uh, close to almost a thousand. Uh, so, 
uh, when I said that, you know, uh, to me, self-reliance is not just having more capability at home, it is also bringing that capability to play uh, in terms of larger global uh, requirements and development. Thank you. Uh, let, let me uh, perhaps now move to the Americas. Uh, mm -hmm. Let me move to the Americas sure, sure. now. Uh, I don't know if the minister from Argentina would like to um, uh, uh, ask a question uh, to the minister. Uh, yeah, or, uh, or, or maybe I should go to my my young fellow Diego, uh, who was formerly a politician in Peru. So, uh, and maybe because uh, you know he, he could bring you, um, he could take you to a region that we normally don't speak about. Uh. Good morning, everyone. My name is Diego. I'm from Peru. Rising a young fellow. Very happy to be here today. Uh, that's right. I, I think that during your intervention, you mentioned a lot about the tensions between the West and and Russia your relationship with the neighborhood, South Asia, uh, Central Asia, uh, but nothing about Latin America. So I would like to know more about what is your objective with respect to this region of the world, what role can India play in the region, and also vice versa, what the Latin countries could do more with India and together in the global governance. Thank you. Uh, you know, uh, a good example of what we are do what uh, of the of the uh, relationship we have with the region actually uh, i could think of in terms of the minister who didn't ask the question my colleague from argentina uh, because when i met him uh, we actually uh, discussed uh, today the the doubling of trade uh, which has taken place between uh, india and argentina that uh, again this these are interesting globalization consequences of conflicts. You know, Ukraine was a very big provider of edible oil, mm -hmm. sunflower oil, uh, to India. So one of the many consequences of the conflict in Ukraine is that uh, those supplies have been cut. Now, Argentina has emerged as one of our biggest sources of uh, edible oil, uh, soya oil, uh, largely in their case. So uh, I think that era where distance meant indifference is behind us. Uh, today, if you look in terms of what, you know, the economic benefits and the, I would say, the uh, political uh, commonalities uh, in terms of the uh, technology uh, you know, bridges, uh, a lot of our IT companies, for example, have a very large footprint uh, in Latin America. Uh, you know, my colleague from Colombia, whose ambassador sitting here reminded me that the second largest two-wheeler export by India is actually to Colombia. Uh, so, so there is actually, you know, it's, it's very interesting uh, that often things happen on the ground. The debate the, doesn't necessarily capture it initially, uh, but uh, I would uh, say uh, perhaps for next year, maybe we should uh, have a a greater focus on uh, how you know India's relations with Latin America and maybe Latin America's relations with Asia uh, have have expanded in these years. I'd like to turn to the subject economics, which also is very strategic for the Indo-Pacific region. As you know, uh, after India withdrew for a good reason from the Regional and Comprehensive Economic Partnership Agreement in 2019, it's launched a series of bilateral agreements, including uh, concluding one with the United Arab Emirates and with uh, Australia. 
but at the same time, China is aggressively following a regional strategy, leading the RCEP uh, countries, and also has applied for membership in the Comprehensive and Progressive Agreement on Trans-Pacific Partnership. It's pursuing its Belt and Road Initiative. Is India giving thought to approaching the region economically in addition to uh, on a bilateral basis? And if so, by the way, through what mechanisms? Uh. Well, uh, I think uh, you, uh, you're right that in the last uh, few months, uh, we've actually made some uh, uh, significant progress in bilateral FTAs. Uh, we've concluded two of them with Australia and with the UAE. Uh, we uh, hope that after, uh, you know, especially after the visit yesterday of President von der Leyen that our European Union, FTA, and uh, other negotiations will pick up greater speed. Uh, we are very confident that after Prime Minister Boris Johnson's visit uh, a few days before that, uh, that our FTA with UK will uh, gather steam as well. Uh, so definitely on the bilateral side, there is a lot of activity uh, which, is, which is going on. Uh, in the, your question, do, are, we, are we also thinking regionally? Well, to some extent, we have regional FTAs. We have an FTA with ASEAN. Uh, so uh, we are uh, discussing an FTA with the GCC as a group. Uh, we have a, a, a long-standing discussion with Mercosur. Uh, so those are in play. Uh, but we also, you know, looking beyond the orthodox way of engaging. Uh, and uh, yesterday, uh, among the uh, agreements which were reached where uh, uh, a Trade and Technology Council uh, launch with the EU, which we have to work on and see. And I, I think that would be very, very uh, helpful for a deeper uh, engagement with the EU uh, on uh, you know, resilient and reliable supply chains uh, on uh, more, you know, on development of trusted technologies. Uh, and uh, with the United States uh, as well, I, you know, when, when I was there in Washington and with some of my economic colleagues, uh, again, uh, there are discussions underway whether uh, there are uh, new ways of engaging, not necessarily through an FTA mechanism, there's something more contemporary, something which would be, uh, which, which would be more practical and more acceptable to the current political uh, circumstances. So it is very much in play. Uh, can, I, can I now ask my colleagues to take the mic to Prime Minister Carl Bildt? Uh, uh, Carl, would you like to ask a, pose a question? Uh, the mic is right behind you. Aditya, Aditya. Yeah. Thank you, Aditya. Thanks. Um, a lot about Ukraine, but I would say that Ukraine is also about other things. It was about China. And uh, the worries that we have from, say, the European point of view, if I can express that, is that others might draw conclusions from what's happening, and that's dangerous. Uh, so my slightly difficult question to you, and I can see it can be difficult to answer in public, what conclusion do you think China will draw from what's happening? Uh, do they see that there's a possibility to do things that otherwise would not be allowed? Or do they think they will draw the conclusion that, well, the international reaction is so strong that we might be forced to restrain ourselves? And I think that's a critical question, because what China 
The conclusions China draws from this will have major repercussions for their security, not primarily of Sweden, but perhaps even more for India. Uh, you know, I'm tempted to say, as I did to your colleague, that you should be asking Minister Wangi that question, but he's not here. Uh, but uh, look, let me, let me say this, because I, I can't honestly answer that question. Uh, but I don't think international relations necessarily functions by precedence. Uh, you know, people don't need to see something out there and say, aha, that's what I'm going to do. I mean, that's how mostly bureaucracies function. Uh, but I, I think uh, world affairs has a sort of a much more self-driven, uh, self-calculating way of, of working. Uh, in terms of, because uh, again, quite candidly, we've been hearing for the last two months a lot of, our, lot of arguments from Europe saying, you know, there are things happening in Europe and Asia should worry about it because these could happen in Asia. Guess what? Things have been happening in Asia for the last 10 years. Now, Europe may not have looked at it. So, so you know, it, 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 this could be a wake-up call for Europe, not just in Europe. It could be a wake-up call for Europe to also look at Asia. Uh, so, there have been, I mean, this has not been an easy part of the world for the last decade. Uh, and uh, I mean, this is a part of the world uh, where, uh, you know, uh, boundaries have not been settled, uh, uh, where uh, terrorism is still practiced, often uh, sponsored by states. Uh, this is a part of the world where, uh, you know, the rule-based order has been under continuous stress for more than a decade. Uh, and uh, I, I think it's important for the rest of the world outside Asia to, to recognize that today. It's, it's not the problems are going to happen. The problems have been happening. Um, let, let me uh, bring in one of our young fellows again to, in a sense, conclude and cap this session. Uh -huh. so, sure. Let me invite uh, uh, Lucas Lamberti from uh, Germany for the final questions. Yeah, thank you very much. It's a privilege being here. My name is Lucas Lamberti. Uh, I work at Konrad Adenauer Foundation in Berlin, and I'm also a young fellow. So uh, yesterday, EU Commission President Ursula von der Leyen, she mentioned the EU Global Gateway Initiative and she spoke about it. So I was wondering, in which fields do you see potential for cooperation for India uh, with regard to this initiative? And uh, what do you more general The Global Gateway it? Project. She mentioned the Global oh, Gateway yes, Project. Yes. And let's add some spice to it. Um, does it have, will it have the same traction as the VRI, for example? Uh, or is it going to end up becoming a complementary support system for the larger projects underway in that particular initiative? So I think the future of the Global Gateway, the future of some of our own initiatives. Uh, well, you know, we, we discussed that yesterday uh, and uh, we have been uh, very interested uh, in how the EU is taking forward a Global Gateway. Uh, because uh, on the issue of connectivity, it's very interesting. If you remember, uh, uh, Samir, I think it was our 2016, 2016, 2016 Rizina, where somebody out there, uh, standing out there, asked me a question on uh, the issue of connectivity and the issue of Belt and Road. Uh, and we've been very, very clear uh, on the importance of uh, market-based, transparent, uh, uh, consultative 
connectivity initiatives. Uh, it took us a few years to convince the rest of the world to come around to that viewpoint. Uh, so today we are very pleased uh, to see, I mean, it could be the Global Gateway, it could be Build Back Better, it could be other uh, initiatives. We ourselves, uh, you know, promote connectivity initiatives uh, in the neighborhood uh, and beyond uh, in a very substantial way. So, uh, it, you know, uh, we do need we, need, we do need today to find ways of working together. I say this, you know, for a large part of the world, there was an earlier co conversation on uh, liberalism. But I, I, I think if I were to take the most expansive view of uh, what is the democratic space, uh, I think it's important. Within the democratic space, we recognize the diversity of that space and we find better ways of working together on the big issues of the day. It could have been COVID. I think we missed the bus there a bit, uh, but it certainly is connectivity. Uh, it definitely is climate change. Uh, so uh, I, I, today, you know, uh, India is uh, prepared to step forward in a much more substantive way on the big global issues, uh, uh, including in the multilateral arena. So since you're in such an expansive mood, uh, next year, Raisina, what could be the two or three big topics that you think would be important at that time? Uh, oh. That's a, I mean, I'm being a little... No, no, I, I, I know, uh, you know, you can't resist being provocative, but uh, <laughs> I, I think I will resist that answer. Great. Uh, yeah. Excellent. So please join me in applauding uh, the Foreign Minister Thank you. for his wonderful interaction. Thank you for tuning in to Policy Pod the ORF podcast. Please subscribe to our channel for updates on upcoming episodes.